a child who was shy, a child that was a wallflower that was very insecure because my world around me was very insecure. So therefore, that's how I walked around was in total insecurity. And I think he came around a lot just to size me up, to see what kind of a child I was, what how he could, you know, get away with something and if his secret would be safe or if I'm the kind of child that would fight him back or, you know, come out and tell everybody. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, an Associate Licensed Counselor and Nationally Board Certified Counselor in the state of Alabama under the supervision of Cotina Stroud. The Real Talk 238 podcast has real conversations concerning taboo topics, which people may find themselves struggling with that may not be discussed, especially in relation to the church. The purpose of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to bring awareness, hope, and encouragement. Having these conversations will shed light on the truth and break the lie of being the only one, being stuck, isolated, and alone because there is someone else who has gone through something similar. Topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and is intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone, welcome today to today's podcast of the Real Talk 238. I am super excited about my guest today, and before we get going, I'm just going to put a trigger warning in at the beginning. If you have small children, please do not have them listen to this podcast. Pause it for later, come back to it, because today's topic is very intense, is very personal as well, and you will understand as we keep going. So today's guest, her name is Jacqueline St. Clair. She's from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her occupation, and I absolutely love this, is a domestic engineer who wears many hats, which I think that's a perfect description. She's married to Ray St. Clair, and she's been married for three amazing years, as she describes it. And I'm I'm guessing if I asked him, he would probably agree. And so between them, they have six children. How many grandchildren do you have? Uh, We have four. And we have custody of two. Noah is 12 and Auburn is eight. Okay. So six grandkids or four grandkids. Four grandkids. And then we have six children between us. Um, Ray has a, two adult children from a previous marriage. And I have four adult children. Well, one's almost an adult. She'll be 18 here this year. All right. So, and I have four. Okay. So we have six. All right. And then for pets, I just learned about what this was or is. Um, it is not a canary, but it is called a Pressa canarios. 
I think I'm getting better as I pronounce, as I work on that. And it gets funnier every time. <laughs> um, she has three of those. And if you're not familiar what breed of dog this is, it's one of the Mastiffs. It's one of those huge dogs that you could probably put a saddle on and ride it out into the out into the sunset. Anyway, mm -hmm. she also has a mini pug, Lola, I believe. And then mm -hmm. a Russian blue cat. I don't remember his name, but he definitely rolls the house. Uh, boomer 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 that's right boomer uh, and i think that's a fitting name jacqueline and her husband pastor at the pentecostals of albuquerque and she's been in church approximately six years she currently serves as ladies ministry deliverance ministry and an evangelism and she describes herself as being very confident, a motivated lady. She brightens the room that she walks into. And I just have to say I agree with that since I've been able to talk <laughs> with her. She carries the presence of God into every situation that she's involved in. And she's a wife, a mother, and grandmother. She preaches and ministers the gospel wherever she can. She enjoys reading and studying. She loves the Lord and her family. She enjoys being outdoors, and she's very conscious and tries to guard her prayer life. She believes in the redemption of Jesus Christ, and as she puts it, look what he did for me. I think that's an awesome mm. statement. And a fun fact about Jacqueline is she snorts when she laughs. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> welcome to the <laughs> podcast, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction? No, ma'am. I think that is enough <laughs> personal stuff. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I reached out to Jacqueline, I think it's about a year ago, if I'm not mistaken, or close to it. I had read an article that you had, either you had written or somebody had written about you. In this article, it talked about going from being in Playboy to becoming a pastor's wife. And You've been on some other podcasts and stuff concerning that, but today I didn't want to so much focus on life there to becoming a pastor's wife because as a therapist, you know, when I've seen clients, oftentimes, you know, there is a reason why people get to the place they do and mm -hmm. people have histories and sometimes it is buried deep. Sometimes you just never know. And let me just say this, you know, as you hear somebody's story, and I don't care whose story it is, somebody is always going to have a worse story than you will. And then somebody will always not have as worse a story. You know, their story may not be as intense. And a lot of people, they want to apologize. Well, what I went through wasn't bad enough or whatever the case may be. And I'm always of this mindset, but it's your story. I don't care mm -hmm. if the person who had it worse than you, they didn't walk in your shoes. They could not walk in your shoes because they had to live their own story. And that's their history. And, and I hope our listeners understand that if your story is worse, it's your story. If your story is not as severe that's still your story. And it still is painful. It doesn't take away any less. It's still your story. And so, you know, it's important to acknowledge that. So today, Jacqueline, I just wanted you to talk about like, from when things began in the beginning, 
up until, you know, your life just went these different routes. Yes. My parents were teenagers. Mom had just turned 18 years old, approximately 10 days after I was, or before I was born. Dad was 19 years old and uh, dad came from a pretty normal family childhood. They were, they were from Mississippi. So they're very Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist. And I do remember as a child seeing Bibles in my grandfather's study and things as I was growing up. My mother, on the other hand, she was one of nine and she came from a very abusive foundation. Uh, Both of her parents were alcoholics, very physically abusive to each other and to the children. I know they struggled with food and proper clothing and living in and out of people's garages. They would sneak into people's garages and sleep on the floor there, sleep on the riverbank in Illinois, things like that. So she had a very broken foundation. And this was your... This was your mom growing up. So like her parents, yes. your grandparents, they were just kind of sleeping here and there and camping out wherever they could. Yes. My understanding as and from talking to my mom and of course, some of her siblings that have very similar memories of their childhood. It wasn't that they were poor in the fifties that, or let me, re, let me rephrase that. They were poor in the fifties as a result of their choices to use their income for cigarettes and alcohol. Got it. Had they not chosen those things, they wouldn't have been in a, in a poverty situation trying to take care of nine children. Right. So that's kind of where they were. And they had, you know, stories about, you know, waiting until the donut shops closed and they would go inside of dumpsters to get food, to get old donuts and stuff thrown in and then bring them back to the home for the other children that were there because mom and dad were either passed out or beating each other. Okay. Things like that. Right. Okay, so take us up to like your parents, they when they met and and go from there. Okay. So my parents met as teenagers and I I feel like I need to express this just so everyone can get a bit of an understanding of how serious the situation was for my mom and I tell my mom's a little bit of of the story from her simply because I think it will give the listeners a little bit of a follow through of how the uh, patterns of abuse follows through from one family to an, you know, one generation of a family to another. She has told me several times that at 15 years old, that's when she met my dad, that, you know, it was puppy love. It was kitty love. It was the kind of love that, you know, she thought it was, but wasn't because you're 15. And she also viewed my dad as an escape plan. And by escape plan, meaning that she knew if she could get married, at 15, that he would be able to remove her from that abusive environment that she had been in most of her life, all of her life. And so they snuck off to Tennessee and they got married because at that time, I don't know if things have changed, but during that time, you did not need a parental signature to get married at 15 years old. Right. So that's what they did. They got married. She was 15. And then I came along. She had me three years later, which to me, when I was asking my mom questions was remarkable because at first, you know, I thought, okay, if I'm the product of two teenagers, it must've been, she got pregnant and then she got married because of the pregnancy. And it was just the opposite. They married and they were married for three years before I came along. Total time they were married was six years. They divorced when I was three years old. And that put them both as very young adults, 21, 22 ish, somewhere around there, right smack dab into the disco era where all the nightclubs were booming and marijuana was prevalent and going out and partying 
you know, was the thing to do on the weekends. At least that was my childhood. Right. I don't know how everyone else's was, but that was my childhood. Right. And so with that, like when it's all that up and down and, and not quite knowing which way to go and then parents have to, you know, are going out and partying, what have you kind of like as a kid, when you're that little, you know, it leaves questions in your head, like, okay, where, where are they going? What are they doing? And, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and for some people that really, it may cause some people to have problems with attachment, not saying that's the case with you, but for some people, if they don't have that, that connection at a very, very young mm-hmm. age, that they don't make connections real well later on in life, if that makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense. And the reason why I say that is because I struggled with that for many years right? with the attachment thing. Yes, I really did, you know, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more into my story, but that was just kind of the baseline of viewing that stuff growing up. And then the other things happened and bullied in school and all these different things that took place. So I was always the type of person that would get just so close to someone, but not close enough to have an intimate relationship. Now, when I say intimate relationship, I don't mean a sexual intimate relationship. I mean, an intimate relationship with, you know, if you have a best friend, you share your, 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 you know, your excitement, you share your insecurities. That is a friendship on an intimate level. Yes. Yes. Okay. So when I say intimate, I don't want people to misunderstand me and think I'm speaking of just a sexual intimacy. I'm not, I'm speaking of true relationships, true, not, not the fluff kind where you just, you know, go along and you tell them their hair looks great. And you walk away in your mind thinking who did her hair today? You know, those kind of things I'm talking about a genuine friendship. And I believe that I struggled with that for many years. And a lot of my turnaround in my life is hinged directly after I got into church. So I, I believe that once God got a hold of me and shifted me around and put me in the direction he wanted me to go in, it wasn't a very, you know, a long process. I mean, I have, I have friends with, you know, I'm friends with people that have been in church many years and they look at me and they say, wow, God has not just taken you from here to there. It has happened very quickly. Yes. Like God said, here it is. And you're, I'm moving you. We're going, we're doing this. Right. So it took a lot of, it took, I, God had his work cut out when he got a hold of me. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you know what? Not going, because this isn't about me, but I oftentimes feel that same way. <laughs> I'm sure Jesus face palms himself all the time with me. Like, oh, what is she doing now? <laughs> I hear you, sister. I hear you. But, um, but backing up a little bit, when my parents uh, divorced at three and, you know, they were doing their own thing. My dad wasn't much of a nightclub guy. He was more of a, I guess he would call him a pothead in the seventies. Um, when I would visit him on the weekends, it was, you know, him and his best friend. And all they did was smoke weed and listen to Led Zeppelin. I mean, that was what I got on dad's side. And then of course, when I was with mom's side, it was parties at her apartment, or I would be drugged to other houses where they were having all nighters waking up the next morning stepping over people passed out everywhere. You can think of right. beer cans everywhere. Aerosmith records still skipping, yes. you know, on the stereo, yes. um, you know, that kind of thing. I think they, I think my mom and my dad just were trying to relive the teenage years that they didn't get because they were parents and they were husband and wives at such a young age. So my mom having primary custody, dad having visitation, she was working 
a couple of jobs at a time just to be able to survive. She didn't finish high school and things like later she did. She went back and she did graduate college. She did become a nurse. She's retired now. But at that time in her life, it was juggling one job to another to make ends meet as well as, you know, getting public assistance. And I think, you know, you get the idea. So she would, she couldn't afford to pay a babysitter. And at that time in the seventies, they didn't have the subsidy programs where you could go in and apply for childcare help and things like that. So she used um, both sets of grandparents, maternal and maternal side. And my father, his parents lived next door to one of his siblings and she had married a pedophile. And this particular pedophile had been in prison a couple of times. One of the stints he did was fairly long for allegedly killing a girl, a 12-year-old girl, I believe. So when he came out of prison, before he married her, this happened before he married her, he had went in and changed his name. And they didn't have technology. I just want to stress that out. They didn't have a lot of people maybe going, well, how... Why didn't they do something? How did they not know this? Yeah, you know, all the, you know what's going on, right? Because back in the seventies, they didn't have all that technology and DNA no, testing no. and all that stuff. You know, now we can just whip our phones out, you know, and punch in, you know, a search on someone, and you can find out several things. We didn't have that then, so it was a rumor, basically, a rumor that had gotten back to a few people in my family, and of course, my aunt said, "Oh, it wasn't true. It was made up. It wasn't true. This kind of thing." And my grandmother would always say, yes, it's true. Um, he changed his name and et cetera, et cetera. So I was always instructed and as well as my grandmother, when my mom would drop me off there because she'd go to work or sometimes it wasn't even a work thing. It was a party thing. She needed a babysitter. That's where I go. And it was, do not let Jackie go next door. You know, or monitor at all times because I guess mama's instinct, she knew that the allegations, even though we, we couldn't, you know, just go view a police report like we can now. You know, she she just wanted, I guess, err on the side of caution. And I ended up next door anyway, after being there several times uh, at my grandparents' house. I asked if I could go next door to play with the dogs. So so you had been at your grandparents several times and mm-hmm. before you ever went over there. Yeah. And I would see the same man and he would come over to my grandmother's house for different things. I never can recall him ever speaking to me or doing what a typical pedophile does, meaning grooming. I never remember the grooming process, but there may have been a grooming process in place. And I, you know, for whatever reason, my mind just doesn't remember that at such a young age. Let me just interject Mm -hmm. this in here. For those who do not know what grooming is, grooming, a lot of perpetrators or pedophiles use it, even sex traffickers, just putting that out there because what they do is they make things appear what they have like the grass is greener on the other side. So they may make things appear like, hey, I've got this cool video system or I've got this some neat movies or you know what? At your parents' house, it's just, it's so unfair over there. Why don't you come over to my house and just to get away and have some fun? You never get to have fun at your house. You know, and things like that. This is what grooming mm-hmm. is. And it takes time, especially if you've really put into your kid, you know, this is this is how, you know, danger stranger and all that stuff, which, you know, nowadays, it's not danger stranger. It's more the people that we know that are the ones that are get, weeding their mm-hmm. way in. Right. 
Let me just say this as well, that when it comes to perpetrators and, and sexual abuse, and because that's what they do, they're sexual abusers. When it comes to those sort of things, oftentimes people think of sexual abuse as penetration, you know, and it's not always penetration. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. it's being forced to participate in another person's sexual activity. Sometimes it's being forced to have anal sex, oral sex. Sometimes it's being forced to, to watch pornography. Sometimes it's just as... It's just um, fondling. Sometimes it's unwanted kissing. But whatever the case may be, you know, and then there, of course, is penetration. And sometimes penetration does not mean that it it involves a penis or it involves a vagina. Sometimes penetration could be a finger or a object. You know, it's, it's not just what people perceive. There's all sorts of different things. And... I'm not going to go broader than that, but, you know, there's just, it's unimaginable. People just can't imagine what, what all aspects of sexual abuse looks like. So here you have somebody who's, who was a pedophile and back then they didn't, they didn't have where you could just look them up. And so you've been told, don't go over there, stay away from there. How does this, and let me also interject this in here as well. Just because somebody gets it gets entwined into that does not mean they're stupid, does not mean they're ignorant, does not mean they're they're unintelligible. Not at all. Because what that pedophile does and what that perpetrator does, it they work on a person's trust. If they can build up that person's mm-hmm. trust, then they they've got their way in. It is nothing about being stupid or ignorant or how could I've not seen that? It's nothing about that. Right. Right. So how did in the case of this particular event, how did how did he so he would go over to your grandmother's and maybe not said anything, but he was just making his presence known where he could see you and mm-hmm. you could see him. And make it appear like he's this trusting person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't really remember too much about him prior to um, my own incident with him. I just remember that he was married to my dad's, one of my dad's sisters. I remember he lived next door, but he was always a um, kind of a quiet person when he was around. He didn't talk a whole lot. So I, you know, I, that's why I say I don't really recall if there was any grooming, so to speak, going on. I think because I was uh, kind of a shy child, given my own circumstances of, you know, growing up in my four years of time, um, I was very shy and those kind of things. I think he just probably came around just to size the situation up. Because one thing I've noticed with perpetrators like that, they tend to go for the children that are shy, quiet, introverted before they tend to go to the child who's an extrovert, very social and outgoing. Yes. I have noticed that, you know, just over the course of, you know, my own adult life, I guess you could say. So I was the, I was a pedophile's dream, so to speak, because I was a a child who was quiet, a child who was shy, a child that was a wallflower that was very insecure because my world around me was very insecure. So therefore that's how I walked around was in total insecurity. And I think he came around a lot just to 
size me up to see what kind of a child I was, what, how he could, you know, get away with something. And if his secret would be safe, or if I'm the kind of child that would fight him back or, you know, come out and tell everybody. Right. And so I asked my grandmother if I could go next door and to give you a better description of what I'm saying next door, the housing, the way that the houses were sitting at the time, the abuser's house set way far back, almost adjacent to my grandmother and grandfather's backyard. It wasn't like the houses were right next door. It was like his home was way in the back. So when I said, can I go next door to see the dogs, the dog cages would have been right next to my grandmother's home. Right. So I think maybe in her defense and, you know, maybe she was thinking, well, since the house is way back there, or I guess in Mississippi terms, way back yonder, yes. then, you know, and I could possibly see her through the window here. And she said, don't go any other place. I was safe. But what she didn't think through was that a pedophile doesn't run out of the house all loud and snatch a kid up. So the kid is kicking and screaming and everybody in the neighborhood looks to see what's going on. Right. And he did not. I remember he came out because he heard the dogs barking because I'm laughing and giggling and playing by myself with these dogs because my fingers are through the fencing and they're licking and I'm just, and they're running around and I'm, I'm tickled. I'm, you know, I'm having a great time. And when he came out, he has a tool and his tool was, do you want to come in and see Pepper? Pepper was another dog, but he was the indoor dog and he was a black dachshund, I think. I do remember, even at that age, at four years old, I remember that, I guess, gut feeling. If a child would have a gut feeling, I guess I had one. Yes. But I remember feeling kind of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. But I went anyway. And I remember it was, you know, come on in, come on in. You know, so I went right in the back door. And, you know, later in life, my mind goes back and I think, well, didn't my grandma wonder where I was? Right. The dogs had to have stopped barking. Yeah. No one wondered. No one looked. No one did anything until I walked back around. And of course, I'm four. At that age in life, children, they know when something isn't right. Yes. But the embarrassment part of it hasn't quite linked up to it yet because they don't know. Yes. And the other thing, too, with with children, that little... Okay, they may not have the complete, complete broad language skills like you and I mm -hmm. have, but they, in their way, and I'll just say this, like I've worked with kids who, you know, have been sexually abused at such a young age mm -hmm. and, or even adults for that matter, I'll just use adults. Okay, they've been sexually abused at a very, very young age. Okay, when it comes time to get into that sexual abuse, they can't get the words out because as a little kid, a little girl or a little boy, they didn't have know what words to put. They just knew it was ick. They, right. they knew like they will even like fill it in certain parts of their body where that right. abuse took place. And so, mm -hmm. you know, our bodies and it's so amazing to me, our bodies will actually store any type of negative event or traumatic event will actually hold on to it till we can get to a place when we're older and we can let it go. We can release it by, you know, whether we see a therapist or talk to a best friend or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Right. Know. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So when I returned to my grandparents' home, 
I didn't just leave the pe- perpetrator's house and, you know, skip next door and come in and say, hey, granny, guess what just happened to me? It was as if I just walked right in back into the situation yes. and went about my four-year-old daily activities that I would normally do. Yeah. Was your grandmother, was she aware at all about what, um, what was happening or like what had happened? No, she didn't know until after everyone else found out. Okay. And it, it literally, it was found out that very evening. Okay. It wasn't a choice of my own. What happened was when my mother picked me up, we went back to her apartment. She shared an apartment with one of her younger sisters at that time. And they ran me a tub bath so that I could be, you know, get my bath, get my pajamas on, you know, the, that, that kind of thing. And they had just a normal warm bath water. And when they had picked me up to set me in the tub, I am around four years old, probably more like three and a half. And as soon as my bottom hit the warm water, I started screaming and jumping and frailing and crying. And, you know, and they, they're thinking that the water was too hot or something. So they're pulling me out to stand me on the little bath mat in front of the tub. I remember my aunt was touching the water and she's like, it's not barely warm. I don't understand. And they happened to look down and that's when they seen that I was, I was razor burned, balded from belly button to kneecaps. I was, you were razor burned. Yes. Meaning it was okay. I was not penetrated by my perpetrator. My child molester was all oral. Okay. So he did not make me perform on him. He was performing on me to the point that his rough face from his razor, from his whiskers, uh, gave me razor burn all over the bottom half of my stomach into my private area and down the inside of my thighs to my kneecaps. So when I hit the warm water, it's, it like ignited a fire. And so that's how they found out. So they're asking me questions. What happened? What happened? At that age, I had to tell them. I didn't know not to tell them because at four, that's what happened. So you just say, this is what happened. Yes. So they, now they didn't notice anything prior to putting you in the tub. No. Okay. Mm -mm. But afterwards they pull you out of the tub and they see just all this, your skin's just totally irritated, galled. And they said, what happened? Now you have to remember my mom is about 21 and a half years old about about that time. And her younger sister, who was a twin, she was about 17. So you've got two very young, in my opinion, unskilled parents, unskilled girls. And they're saying what happened. And I just told them, I said, so-and-so, I mean, he's dead now, but I said, so-and-so licked me right here. And then they called the police, but before the police came over to gather conversations and evidence, they, they rushed over. My mom had a horrific temper. They rushed over and she was ready to beat up the world. By this point, my grandparents come out of the house and neighbors are coming out and the cops show up and Meanwhile, here I am in the back seat and I'm crying my eyes out because I, this is another traumatic event for me, Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I'm scared to death because now I've in my little mind, what just happened, I told on someone. So now the cops are here, right? You know, oh my goodness. And the cops to a four-year-old, you know, we didn't have parents that would pat your head and say, little Johnny or little Susie, let's go talk to the police officer. He's your friend. The when the cops showed up, that was always a bad thing, right? So I was, you know, I remember crying and and carrying on. And um, needless to say, even though I the the police officers had me describe everything in the house that I could remember, and I was spot on to this day at 48 years old, 
I have not forgotten where the dog food bag set, where the washer and dryer was, this, what the comforter on the sofa looked like, where the bird cage hung, the color of the walls. I remember details. They knew I was checked out at the hospital. They knew I was obviously sexually assaulted. There was no denying that. But in that time, when the 70s, there was no penetration. So they had no DNA. So it was basically a four-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old, four-year-old's word against a man. Yes. That in there, what they had in front of them in terms of a police record, had a squeaky clean record because, remember, he changed his name. I don't know how all that worked back then. I don't know how, how police searches worked. All I know is nothing was done. At the end of the day, nothing was done. So in my mind, everything calmed down and, you know, there was no therapy. There was no, I'm sorry, this happened to you. There was nothing. There was nothing. So I grew up going, okay, I'm not quite sure what happened, but I know it was a bad thing that happened, but I'm not safe. Because I already had the feeling at that age that my world, my home, my life, the adults in it, I was not secure because I was shuffled around all the time. I was shuffled around so much that I remember calling my mother's parents when they would watch me. I would call them mom and dad because there were, I was with them so much. So with that being said, now you add a sexual assault in there. So now I'm really introverted, really shy. I remember not wanting to express my feelings or talk at all. It was more like, I'll just be here. I'll be quiet. I'll go with the flow and they won't notice me. Then I'm safe. Yeah. Now at any time, did anybody blame you for? No. Because as a four-year-old kid, when all you've ever known about the cops is especially in the seventies and you know, the drug scene, what have you, the cops show up, it's not a good thing. So then here you right. are four years old, the cops are called because you, you told what happened, you told the truth. Right. And then nothing's done. No, the only thing I remember is my aunt who was married to the perpetrator. She was, I remember her screaming that day, calling me a liar, saying that she was a liar. I do remember that. And so my whole world at that point, I was, I was just terrified. You know, the whole incident was very upsetting and we didn't, you know, we didn't go to therapy. We didn't have a counselor. We didn't do anything. We just pushed that thing right under the rug, dusted it off and pick yourself up and you just keep going about life. And we just don't talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So where did things progress from there? After this had happened, my mom is moving from one apartment to the next apartment because you have to remember she's in survival mode right now. You know, she is a single mom. Child support back then was not something that A, they pressed really hard and B, it wasn't that, I don't think they even had a percentage at that time, you know, like they do nowadays. Yeah. I think my dad paid like $45 a week or something like that. So, you know, he was, you know, he visited with me and all those good things that come at that time in my life. But my mom, since she had all legal and physical custody, she made all the decisions, period, you know, on everything. So I just went along with the ride. I mean, you know, if she needed to move to this apartment because it was cheaper and it happened to be in a really bad section of town, then that's just where we lived. She had a lot of boyfriends, yes, trying to find her own value and worth in life um, at a young age. And I remember a lot of times I'd wake up in the mornings and I would get my own cereal 
I'd make a bowl of cereal. And I remember one particular morning, there was a guy in her bed, they were asleep. And I made cereal, carried it into the living room. And I sat down in front of the TV. We had a little TV on a stand that so I could eat my cereal and watch my Fred Flintstone or whatever it was I was watching. And there was another guy that she had either just broken up with, or she was still seeing, I'm not real clear on that, but it was someone that she had been involved with or was involved with. And she, he was outside and he saw up the up, upstairs apartment in the morning, he saw someone walk past the window. So he was angry with my mom. So he pulled a handgun out and he shot through the window while I was eating cereal. And it, thank God it didn't hit me, but it went past me. I was, I screamed because I didn't know what it was. I, I didn't know, you know, it was a bullet or somebody shot through a window. Yeah. And I don't even remember, you know, our mind, you know, does funny things. And, you know, when it puts things in compartments in our mind, I don't remember after that, her waking up or any, any of those things. I just remember specifically that incident. I remember who the man's name who did it. And I also remember that when my father found out that that had what, that's what had happened by this point, he's starting to get concerned and he had uh, started to seek counsel in trying to gather whatever you know information and evidence he could to try to do something, even if it meant switch custody or whatever he needed to do at that point. He was a single, single guy himself at that point, still trying to find his lot in life. But between the two parents, I had a pretty rough way to go being with mom at that time. So when the is- incident with- happened with the next door neighbor pedophile, mm-hmm. what, how involved was he after that? Is that when he the pedophile? No, your dad. Like was did he was still involved in my life. I mean, he still would come get me, you know, every other weekend. You know, we would go do things, you know, go to Kentucky fried chicken and you know, whatever, you know, we did for the weekend. He'd buy me clothes and you know, things like that. Did he know about what happened? Yes, he was there uh when the cops were called. Okay. And he actually at that point he was living next door with his with his parents, the grandparents where I was dropped off to that day. He lived there and he rented a room at his parents' home at that time, but he was at work. My grandpa was at work. So the only, and and my sister, my dad's sister, my aunt, who was married to the pedophile, she was at work. So the pedophile was at home by himself and my grandma was at home by herself with me. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So with that foundation being built, I had, was enrolled in kindergarten not too long after that. And I had been, re, you know, held back. I had to do kindergarten twice. A lot of times it was because I had a really long name and I couldn't spell it. And, you know, I wasn't getting the support at home to learn how to tie shoes and, you know, zip your coat and spell your really long, long name in the kindergarten class. So, and I missed a lot of school. My education growing up hinged directly on what my mom's lifestyle was at that time. So in kindergarten, I wasn't given the option of, hey, do you have anything important going on in school today. Great. You don't. Okay. Well then I need you to stay home. It was more Jackie just doesn't go to school. And I do remember there was quite a few times that the school was contact my mom and then they would contact the emergency contact, which was her parents, because I had missed some crazy amount of school being in kindergarten. You know, it's imperative that you don't miss any steps when you're in kindergarten. That's starting the foundation of your school. Right. So our lives were pretty rocky. And then she meets well, everybody would say a very good looking, wonderful, charismatic. We now know narcissistic and mentally impaired, but we didn't know that at that time. He seemed to be a decent guy. And, you know, she was crazy about the guy. They moved in together, weren't married, none of that stuff. And I think he had been married. I want to say, 
I don't know, three or four times before her. Not, not that I'm judging anybody by that standard. I'm just giving a little bit of a, his history. You know, I think my mom saw the red flag, but I think she was waiting for it to change colors and it didn't. So she just rolled, you know, kind of rolled with it. So we move in with this guy, we get a really nice house and he's renting this house. But to us, it was a mansion in paradise because we had lived in, you know, in the slums, you know, in Peoria, Illinois, which is three hours south of Chicago. And we lived in Roach Motels and things like that. So getting a really nice house with this guy, he looked like a king to us because we're like, wow, you know, you mean I get my own room and I have a bicycle and I live in a neighborhood and all of these things. And what had happened, she gets pregnant and she was about in her fifth or sixth month, somewhere around there where she was showing pretty good. Um, I was out riding my bicycle and I came back and heard screaming. And I remember putting my bicycle down, jumping off and leaning into the, to the window. So I could hear, cause I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And I was about seven or eight. And I remember hearing her screaming and she's screaming at him, you know, begging him to stop hitting her. And so in my mind, I'm panicked. Here I am a small kid and I'm trying to think like an adult. What do I do? My mom's in trouble. What do I do? But I'm scared of this guy too. Yes. But I do that. I had to do something. And it never registered to me at that age to maybe go to the neighbors and call them, call the police. Because you have to remember the police in my mind. Don't do anything. Exactly. Yeah, they only showed exactly. up for busting people for drugs. And if it's, right. if it's a pedophile, we don't do anything. What do I do? So I thought, okay, I've got to do something. So I went into the house and then I walked in down the hallway and then I was standing by the door and I could hear him beating her and I could hear her pleading for her life. And, I, and then my mind was, she's pregnant. Uh, my baby brother or my baby sister is in there. So I knocked on the door. Again, in the 70s, we just, or I think it was late 70s by this point, we would go out and jump on our bicycles and ride around and we wouldn't come back till the evening time. Nobody batted an eye at that. Nowadays, you can't do that. But there was a little Taco Bell that was a couple streets over from our neighborhood. And I knocked on the door and he flung the door open and he was really mad. And he looked at me and he screamed and he goes, what do you want? And I'm kind of trying to bob and weave and look behind him. And I see my mother, an image I will... It's an image that has stuck with me probably. Well, here we are. It's stuck with me most of my life. But I look behind him and I see my mom with a pregnant belly and she has white shorts on, no shoes, and a pink maternity shirt on. And it's covered in blood from the collar to the bottom. Her shorts are soaked. Her face is unrecognizable. She could see out of one eye. And she, she's trying to mouth to me behind him, help me. Now I'm seven or eight years old. What am I going to do? I'm terrified of this guy too, but I knew I needed to do something. So I said, can I have money for Taco Bell? That was the only thing I could think of. And he then ch- changed his demeanor from aggression to the Mr. Nice guy. Oh, sure. And he kind of chuckled, reached in his pocket. And he says, buy yourself two burritos. And he goes to shut the door and I'm thinking, I got to get her out of there. And she says, I need a drink of water. And he left the door open and he goes, you wait, right? He's talking to my mom. He says, you wait right here. But he threw in some F words and he said, I'll get you water. So I'm standing here looking at my mom. And as soon as this man rounded the corner, she took off out the door and ran out the front door of the house. And I'm running behind her and she's screaming, covered in blood. She's running through the neighborhood. This man 
gets in his car to try to chase us down. And I remember she fell into a ditch in front of um, a neighbor's house that we didn't know anyone in the neighborhood. And I'm trying to help her up out of the ditch because I see this guy coming in a car and this family comes out and they're kind of coming out reluctantly, but they come out and they're looking at us and they're trying to get her into the house. And I'll just name him. His name's Rick. He comes around the corner. He's trying to sweet talk her. Come on, you know, baby, you know, we can work this out. You know, the typical abuser line. And the gentleman, the husband of this family looks at him at that moment. And he says, I'm calling the police. He said, so if you know what's good for you, he said, you'll get off my property. So Rick hit the gas and drove away. And I remember an aunt coming over to pick me up because the ambulance came to pick my mother up. And when she came out of the hospital, they did some testing and the baby miraculously was fine. My sister's now a happy, healthy 41-year-old with four children of her own. But my mother had broken ribs. Somehow the baby was fine. She had a concussion. She had a fractured jaw, broken nose. I think she had a, um, a her cheekbone or something had been had been fractured. Uh, needless to say, she was. It's a miracle that my sister survived through that beating. And the thing was, the man came home. He was high on uh, cocaine and alcohol, and came home with it in his mind that the baby was somebody else's. So his idea was he was going to beat the baby out of her, and in fact, it was her child, his child. When my mother gets out of the hospital, I'm expecting her to leave this man like any normal sane person would. But working around women who are in abuse situations, abusive situations, I've learned that a lot of times they stay. Yes, they go back for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because they can't afford to leave. Sometimes it's because, you know, the abuser, he'll sweet talk his way back in and promise. It was all the above, I think, for for my mom. Yeah, I promise I'll never do it again. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I was with one of my aunts. I remember she gets released from the hospital and she comes pulling up in the car and she had dark sunglasses on to cover her, her bruised face. And she comes up and knocks on the door and was going to take me home, you know, and here you got to remember in my mind as a child, I now hate this man because he just hurt my mom. And I had no choice. I had to go, even though I, I begged her, my aunt begged her, I had to go. So they move out of this house because now we have, you know, the neighborhood has now been talking. I mean, there, there's no way you can miss a, a bloody pregnant woman and an eight-year-old running down the street. So he decides he's going to move us into a bigger, better house. And that's when the abuse on me started. And it wasn't uh, physical abuse. He never, he never hit me or anything like that. By this time, we move into this nicer, bigger house that my mom has delivered my sister at that point. And when she got her six month or six week checkup, excuse me, from the doctor, she had made friends with a neighbor and they were going to aerobics class because in the 1980s, aerobics was the, end. Was the thing. Yeah, it was the thing. And so she would go a couple times a week with the next door neighbor who had also just had a baby. And my sister, my infant sister and I would be left there at the house with the same guy, Rick. He didn't start right away. It, yeah, I don't even know when it started or how it started. It, one day she left to go to aerobics class and he calls me out of my room. My infant sister was sleeping in her cradle and he calls me out of the room and I thought I was in trouble. Still, you have to remember, I was a very shy, quiet, introverted, timid little girl. And of course, in my mind, I'm super scared of this guy in particular because I saw what he did to my mom. Yes. And he calls me out of the bedroom, makes me strip all my clothes off, 
and forces me to lay down in the middle of the living room floor with no clothes on as he's making me lay there while he rubs massage oil and lotion all over me. And you were how old? I was about eight because my sister was born when I was eight. And that was the extent of that. So at that time, so I think that, you know, looking back, he was seeing how far he could go, if that makes sense. Yes. So then it became, I was terrified to say anything because I knew that this guy had to be the most important thing in her world because what, what, what person would allow someone to beat them like that and try to kick their stomach? You know what I mean? So my, my childlike mind, I'm thinking I better not say anything because I might lose my mom because my mom's not going to leave this guy for nothing, nothing, not even her own life. She's not going anywhere. Now, did he ever tell you that you would lose your mom if you told? Mm -mm. No, he never did. He would, but he got so bold that he would wait until she would go to sleep at night. And I had, there was a nightlight in our bathroom and the bathroom sat in the hallway. It was situated where all three bad bedrooms that were in that hallway, when the nightlight was plugged into the bathroom, every bedroom, because they were so close together there, got a little bit of light from that nightlight, unless you had your door shut. So it was their room, my room in the center. And then the other room right next door to mine, directly across from theirs was the nursery where my sister's cradle and crib were. Bathroom kind of sit across from all three. And the nightlight was on. And I remember I heard the bedroom door open. And when he, he had opened my door, my mom was sleeping and he came in and I could tell from the silhouette because the nightlight was behind him and it was on. He had no clothes on. And I thought, well, if I just act like I'm asleep, he'll go away. And instead he came in and he was trying to put his hands down in my panties when I was eight. And I started screaming at that point and he kept telling me, shh, this kind of thing. And then he kind of laughed kind of statistically turned around and walked out and went back into the bedroom. Again, I still didn't tell my mom and you might say, well, why didn't you? Well, at four, I, there was no shame in what happened now that I'm eight. Now I'm shameful. So to me, it's an embarrassment and I'm ashamed and I just wasn't going to tell. And then it progressed where my mom would get ready to leave to go to her aerobics class. And I remember one incident, I ran over and I grabbed her legs and I started crying and begging her not to go. And she's looking at me like, you know, trying to shake me off. And she's like, what, what are you doing? And I remember I was so, I guess, scared that I, I urinated all over the floor, right there at the floor, at the doorway of her leaving. And it never raised any flags, eyebrows, or maybe it did. And she didn't want to know. I don't know. But I remember when she left that day, I really felt helpless. Like there's nobody, nobody that's going to step in. So I ran down the hallway and I went into my room and I had the, the really big closet and I sliding doors. So I slid the door open and I remember going inside of my closet and just piling on as many stuffed animals on top of me as I could get. And then closing the door and I'm just sitting there in the pile in the dark, covered up, thinking if he doesn't know where I am, if he can't find me, then I'll be okay. Well, needless to say, he would always come in and he knew right where I was. There was no hiding. There was nowhere to go. Right. This went on for about a year at that house. And then he got called uh, to Texas and because he was a union iron worker. So wherever the union hall sent him is where we went. We ended up moving to the Fort Worth, Dallas, Grand Prairie area of Texas. And we rented a, uh, an apartment in an apartment complex, had a swimming pool, that kind of thing. 
And by this point, I am in my fourth or fifth school by the age of eight. We moved there. I enroll into the, you know, Sherrod Sharks grade school. I remember swimming at that swimming pool at the apartment complex. And I remember we have people because it's a, it's an apartment complex. So you've got people that are using the pool that live in all different apartments there. And he was drinking beer and there sat my mom and there sat all these people. He says, let me throw you into the deep end. And before I could even say do or swim away, he picked me up to throw me into the deeper end of the pool. And he tried to stick his finger in me while he did it. And that was in front of everybody. It was like he was brazen about it. And I, and I hated him. And I, and I mean, I hated him. And my mom would always say, I don't understand why you hate him. You know, and I think she thought that it, a lot of it had to do with him hitting her, but he never, to my knowledge, ever hit her again since he did when, you know, she was pregnant with my sister. I know he cheated on her quite a bit, had an alcohol problem, cocaine problem, all those things, suffered some mental illness as we're living there in Texas. There, all the signs were there. And it's sometimes as a mom myself, I think to my, to my own self, how could my mom not know? How could she not see something? Because we were sitting, uh, all of us were in the living room one day. My sister was about two at this point. She's in bed. I'm freshly showered, have a little nightgown on, and I'm sitting on the floor in front of the TV watching a movie. And this man had fallen asleep on the sofa. My mom was sitting on the opposite end of the sofa, which would mean his feet was near her legs. He was sleepwalking and he, he slowly comes down off the sofa. My mom is wide awake, by the way. And he comes down off the sofa and he's slinking behind me half asleep. And he gets up behind my ear and he said, you're so cute, but he whispered it. And I screamed and I jumped over him and over the back of the sofa. And my mom's looking around and she goes, what did he say to you? Because I guess she thought whatever he said scared me. But again, as a mom, as, as a grandmother, I often wonder how could you not notice something's detrimentally wrong here? So that didn't end until she finally left him uh, when he was at work. She packed the car up, packed me and my sister up and left. We ended up moving in back in with uh, in Illinois with her mother. And then I was put in another school. And that's when the bullying started. Because I was a, I guess, considered a richie white girl, even though I really wasn't. But I guess coming from Texas, I was. And I was put into a Section 8 school system. So there was a lot of kids that were raised in poverty and things like that. And I was the target because I was the new timid, quiet, shy white girl. There was Latinos, there was Blacks, there was Asians. It was just a very broad mix of children that went to the school and I was the target. Again, I think because I was such a quiet kid that I was just an easy pick for a pedophile or a bully. Yeah. Now, how old was you again at that point? I would be about 10 years old because my sister was, two, was I was eight when my sister was born. And she was two when, when my mother left. So I was about 10. How old were you when, and we may be jumping up, a, jumping ahead a little That's bit. That's okay. How old were you when you started doing the modeling? I actually kind of played around in it when I was about 12 and 13 years old. 12 and 13. Okay. So, but it was catalog modeling. Okay. So from 10 to 12, you're going to the school, being bullied, and you're the shy kid, and you didn't tell anybody about what happened with this guy for, mm -hmm. and that was for a period. How many years did that go on? Well, it's kind of crazy because that's a kind of a hinged question because it started at eight 
was over at 10 when I moved out, when we moved out, but then she got back with him. Okay. And then it started again until I was 12 when she finally got away from him and then didn't go back. Okay. So from eight to 12. Right. Is four years, four Mm -hmm. years of day in, Mm -hmm. day out and what he was doing and the messages Mm -hmm. he was by doing those things like, I'm so brazen, I can get away with this and you have Mm -hmm. no control type messages. And then going to school, I was told I was ugly and I was stupid and I was picked on. So I was pretty much a loner for a while in school. Say to myself, I hated going to school because I knew I was going to be bullied. There was lots of times that I would go outside for recess in sixth grade. I would, you know, be surrounded by a group of girls spitting sunflower seeds in my face and things like this. So, you know, I have this foundation from early childhood up until my, you know, I'm in sixth grade now. Life just wasn't very, it wasn't very pleasurable for me because I was, I was taught there inadvertently that I, there was something wrong with me. I got it. I didn't have any friends at school. Everyone stayed away from me. So for, and and still to this day, I, I have no idea why, but they did. And then coming home was never, you know, the ideal situation either. Right. So I had this, I guess, this thing in my mind that I remember when I was chosen because they had a school at that time for, I guess, to teach you to be a model called John Casablanca's. And I remember in those 17 magazines that, you know, they used to have in the very back, you could tear out, um, you know, an application or whatever. And I remember my dad paid the money for me to go. And it wasn't uh, serious modeling. It was basically, I think now, you know, a quick way to get money because every girl Every girl thinks they're pretty enough to be a model. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they would teach you, you know, how to balance books on your head, just ridiculous things that you never use unless you're going to be a runway model. And that's a very hard line of modeling to get into. So, but that's where it kind of started. And then I figured out after my pictures were taken, I figured out that I was photogenic and that I may be not attractive in person, but if, you know, if I have the right photographer now, all of a sudden, wait a minute, you mean the girl that got picked on actually has value? Right. And then that was a double-edged sword because that led me into, you know, heavier modeling after my children were born. Um, I didn't model while, you know, while my kids were little, but then after my children were born, I got in the gym and I started training all the time. And I went into uh, the fitness industry of competing, right? bodybuilding, I guess you you could say bikini things. And then all of a sudden I've opened up a whole new world of, I, now I have attention. And again, going back to my upbringing of where I wanted to kind of go with the audience of understanding um, how sexual abuse in a child can manifest later. When I was even as young as four, even though I knew those things were bad and they were wrong, it painted this picture to me that my only value and my only worth was in sex. That was the only, because I didn't get told I was pretty at home. My sister was always doted on and we have a good relationship and everything, but growing up, I could be sitting next to her and the four-year-old can be, you know, right next to me and everybody's how beautiful and how amazing and how awesome she is. And I'm just sitting here. So from my upbringing, I have no, no one to say, good job. I'm proud of you. You're cute. You're pretty. You're smart. You, you matter. You're worthy. None of that stuff. Right. So the only thing I had imprinted in my mind that gave me any sort of recognition or value was the modeling because the modeling, somebody actually told me I was worth something. Right. So 
so here you got into the modeling and I'm not going to go, you know, mm -hmm. we're not going to go into all that because right. if anybody's interested in that part, they can go listen to the crucial conversation. Yeah. And I believe it's right. episode 40, 45, I believe is what it is. Yeah. So let's just fast forward and then you start going to church. You find this church to, to start going to. Well, that's not exactly it. Oh, okay. Back me up there. God, God is, God is amazing. <laughs> he is truly amazing. All right. I was broke, busted, disgusted, raising four kids on my own and Wait, go. a couple of marriages. Wait, what was that? Broke, broke? Broke, busted, and disgusted. <laughs> that is a term I will have to memorize. Broke. That'll preach. That will, that'll preach. That will preach. Yes. Uh, but I was raising four kids on my own. And I, you know, now I look back and I say, wow, I'm glad God, God got a hold of me when he did, because I was starting to follow in the footsteps that the, the foundations that had been laid before me, meaning that I'm going to now start, you know, I, the modeling industry put me in a place where men noticed me now. Yes. So now I am going to start dating yes. to fill a void that I didn't know what the whole was even there from. I had no idea, but I was trying to satisfy the brokenness through relationships. Yes. So I had relationships where I literally had, when I say I dated anything I did, I dated a, a biker. I dated a major league baseball player, a NFL player, rock star. So I was like reaching, I was reaching. Yes. I didn't know I was reaching because you could look at one guy and look at that guy and you say, well, they don't have anything in common. At least most people have a flavor. They have a style. You don't have anything because I was searching. And I remember the last really horrific relationship that I was in was with an NFL player that also hit me and he was arrested, put in jail. And I was one of a hundred people he had abused, but hit me once he was out done with. But I remember at that point, that was my broken point. I remember laying in my bedroom floor and I was literally in a fetal position, sobbing, crying. I, I couldn't be consoled. And I, I just laid there crying. And, and I was just like, God, I, I can't do this. I give up. I can't do this anymore. At that point, I wouldn't really say I was suicidal, but I was probably leaning towards that point in my life. I was severely depressed because again, going back to my history, everything I reached out or attempted to do ended badly and rejected. Rejection was my middle name on all avenues. Right. So where does God come into this? Because obviously you just like the thing with modeling, it's just not one of those mm -hmm. things. Oh, Hey, I think I'll yep. do this one day. Same thing yep. when you, when you have a history, you know, you don't just yeah. one day, Oh, I'm going to decide I'm going to go, go to church. No, it's a process nope. that leads up to it. It is. And when I climbed up out of that floor, I remember my oldest son at that time, um, Micah, he came in and he was trying to comfort me. And I thought, I don't want this. I don't want to be a repeat of my mom or I'm the parent or I'm the child and, and my child is my parent. I'm not going to do this. My child shouldn't be in here consoling me. It should be the other way around. It's not his job to come in and fix my, his broken mom. And just so happened, I had randomly made friends with a woman that was going to a Pentecostal church and I loved her to pieces. Her name was, I called her Miss D. She was a very outgoing, older 
but she was uh, just a real bubbly, outgoing black woman. And I, and I always said she was my, she was my second mama because she was a little older than me. And she started coming around and she eventually started bringing friends and we would, they would come over to my house and we would sit in the morning and we'd drink coffee and we'd pray and we'd discuss Bible things. We'd discuss women things. You know, it was just like a group of girlfriends. Right. Now they were, they believed a little differently than I do now. I mean, they, they were Trinitarian Pentecostal, but God still used them. Right. Because it wasn't like you said, it wasn't like I got up one day and said, oh, I think I'm going to go to church. Okay. He, you know, he used them for a, for a season and a purpose in my life. And I, again, I wasn't where I needed to be, but it was a start. And I started going to uh, their churches off and on a uh, little here, little there. I end up still dabbling in the devil's, I guess, playground a little bit. And I made a wrong choice and married someone out of my own desires, own, own lust, own whatever. The marriage was about two years and it took a uh, half a year for the divorce. So total time, two and a half years, very short thing, but God also used that that bad decision as something that he used to bring me where I am. I got in a, it's a funny story. The person I married was not in church. I was not either. And one day uh, we're at a Baptist church and he wasn't real happy with it. Neither was I. And I said, I just don't feel like this is a fit. This, this, there's something not, not settling with me. So he gets online and he finds this uh, apostolic church. Pastor Bales, if you're listening to this, still love you. He, um, Pastor Bales was pastoring a church in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Calvary Apostolic. And the man I was married to found this number because he had a, a background of being in an assembly of God. So he liked an upbeat type church. So in his mind, hey, I found an upbeat church. Right. So we went, we showed up on a Wednesday night for a Bible study. This pastor and his wife looked like they were parting the waters, coming towards us, you know, running through people so happy that, you know, we were there because we had emailed them and they knew we were coming. That was my first experience stepping foot. And that was just a Bible study on a Wednesday night. And I started going regularly and I was there. Maybe I started going regularly and got baptized there. And got filled with the Holy Ghost the minute I come out of the baptismal tank. And about two, three months later, the man that I married gave me an ultimatum. He decided he didn't want to go to church anymore. And he said, choose me or choose the church. And I chose the church. I, Without going too deep, I did have biblical rights and grounds to get a divorce, which I did. But I never looked back. Right. I, I knew that I was going to serve God no matter what no matter what it looked like to other people, no matter the ultimatums that were put in my place, I was going to serve God, period. Because I knew one thing in life that that I was sure of, and that was I was baptized that day and I knew exactly what God felt like. And I'd never felt him before. Wow. And when I come up out of the water and I was filled with the Holy Ghost, to this day, I tell people, you can think I'm crazy. You can think I'm insane. And though all those things might be true but you can never tell me that what I did not experience that day was the spirit of God. Exactly. So as we wrap up, just speak, I want you to take just a little bit of time and speak to that person that's out there that just feels like they don't have a single person that they're alone and, and they've been abused and battered and just speak to that person. You have to reach out. You have to reach up first because you're in a pit. 
You've got to reach up and then you've got to reach out. Because if you don't, the devil's just going to kick you around while you're in that pit. You got to reach up. And when I say reach up and reach out, you've got to reach out to either somebody who you know can pray and reach God, or you have to reach out to God Himself and He'll hear you. He will hear, hear you and He will send someone. He'll send someone to speak life into you, encouragement into you, faith into you, and give you that avenue of hope to be able to turn your direction around and put you on a completely different path. He did it with me. And I look back at the way that he did it and it, it still blows my mind because I can remember where I was, the way I was feeling, the mindset and the emotional place that I was in and how quickly God came in, scooped and set me in, a, in, a, in an absolutely different direction. I would have never imagined that God would have me doing what I'm doing today if you would have asked me that seven, eight years ago. There's no way I would have said, you're crazy, not me. I'm too messed up. There's no way. But those, the messed up ones are the ones that God reaches for the most. Absolutely. So as we end today, Jacqueline, I just want to thank you so much and for telling your testimony. And that was so powerful. I've, I've got chills. I've done three of these interviews now with three different, you're my third person. And I'm telling you, I get chills and uh, feel the Holy Ghost. And, Amen. you know, there's no telling who out there God will reach, but thank you so much for taking the time and, and, and just sharing your heart. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.